Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Church London catch-up service. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a passion to present Jesus to London and would love for you to be part of the adventure. So why not say hello to us by visiting our website manualchurchlondon.org so we can get back to you and say a bit more of a personal hello. Thanks Ben, it's um... It is great to be here. It's great to... That was such a great um, time of worship, I found. Um, And yeah, just really encouraging. It's really encouraging to be with you. It's encouraging because I've been here um, previously. I've been here previously and and every time I come, I'm encouraged. And today there's, there's new life and there's new things. And Ben, you're doing a great job. Someone needs to tell you that. You are, you are doing a great job leading this church and, and, and what you're doing and what you're inspiring. And, and I know you and the, and the church is a little bit like you. And so, so it's very exciting and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. The sweet thing, I don't know where that comes from, but, um, uh, but good. Yeah, 1 Corinthians. Okay, 1 Corinthians is sweet. So it's, it is great to be with you. I, I'm so encouraged by what I've just experienced being here Thank you for your, just your prayers and even upstairs, people are praying for us. Just really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, just, just feel a privilege to be here today. The world that we're living in is changing. God, I believe, post-pandemic is shaking the church um, and he's able to do more with us and through us than we would ever ask or imagine And he's able to do that in your part of London. He's able to do more than you would ever have asked or ever could imagine. God can do more in and through you. But to do that, he needs faithful and obedient disciples. God doesn't just work randomly. He does work according to faith. He responds to faith. He responds to obedience. He responds to the heart. He doesn't just respond randomly to anything that's going on. God doesn't necessarily respond to enthusiasm. He does respond to faith. And so in all that you do, let me say, become a people of faith. Grow in faith because that is what God responds to. Respond to him. Be obedient to the things that he asks you to do. He looks on the heart more than he looks on the hands. As Ben has talked about, and I know, uh, I mean, he's talked about the reconciled church probably more here than I do in my own church, but, but as Ben has talked about that, that has definitely been something that God has laid on, I suppose, my heart since, since that moment that we witnessed two years ago. Since that moment when when George Floyd was killed in front of us, since that moment, something shifted in me. Something happened in me. And it wasn't so much that I became angry or anything like that, but I did become more resolved to go, God, what does this mean for the church? There was lots of noise. There was lots of voices going on. But my thing was, God, what does it mean for the church? Because it's only in so goes the church, so goes the world. It's in the church that we have to bring change. That for those of us who love Jesus, the first place you look 
Actually, the very first place you look is in yourself, but the next place you look is among the body, is among the people. And so God has been speaking to me around that for a while. And so the passage I'm about to read to you has been, a, has been an important passage for me on this journey around unity and diversity. It's a passage that I've been kind of speaking on, I suppose, and looking at for a while over the years. And it's a passage in John 17, and it's verse 20 to 23. It's a passage where Jesus prays for himself. The, 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 the chapter John, in John 17 is one of my favourite chapters of Scripture because it gives us the, the, probably the most intimate insight into the life of Jesus, where he prays. There's nowhere else where I think Jesus, well, maybe he does on the cross, where Jesus prays for himself. He prays for himself. He prays for the believers who are with him, the disciples. And then he does this interesting thing. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, Jesus prayed for you whilst he was here on earth. You were in his heart. When he prayed in that moment, we were hearing earlier about fathers. There was a moment in history where Jesus on earth prays for you and he prays for me. Is something. So when we read passages like this, <clears throat> in a sense, we give them a little bit more weight because they are the very words of Jesus. This is what's in his heart. And this is what was in his heart something like six days before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays. I don't know what you would do if you knew you had six days to live. This is what Jesus prays. So I'm just going to read a few of the verses. Verse 20 to 23 of John 17. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, we've heard so much this morning about your grace and your goodness and your kindness. We've heard so much about your fatherliness, your heart towards us. And I pray, Father, that everything that we've heard will um, bear fruit in the hearts that it has touched. And I pray in this moment that what we hear will bear much fruit in the heart that it touches. I pray, Father, for open hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, Jesus, he prays for us. He prays for his disciples. He prays for himself. But he then prays for us, which is a wonderful thing. Before the cross, he has us in view. He has us in mind. My prayer is not for them alone. I'm praying for those who will believe 
There's an element there where Jesus is indicating, I suppose, faith. He knows. He knows that the gospel is going to go across the world. He knows that the gospel isn't going to end, even though his disciples weren't perfect. He knew it was never going to end there. He knew it was going far beyond them. And so he says, look, I pray for those who will believe. There will be people who never meet me physically, but they will believe in me. And we are among those people who have believed, who have come to faith in Jesus, right across all sorts of barriers. He's looking ahead. That was his prayer. And he prays for those who believe in me through their message, this gospel expansion. The fact that the gospel was always going to go to the ends of the earth. It always was. Not because the disciples had it all sorted out, but because that was always the purpose and the plan of the heart of God. And God is relentlessly committed to his own purposes. He will always fulfil what he says. Always. He will always go about and do the things that he has promised he will do. I pray for those who will believe. Have we the faith even in this room to say, I pray for those who will come. They will come. That one day this kind of place will be full of people. And it will be full, not because you've been really strategic and really great at it, but because God is always committed to his purpose. And where the gospel is proclaimed, people will come. There is part of it that that is how it works, where the gospel is proclaimed, where the people of God gather. If you read it, you read it in Acts, people would come. People would be saved. People would be added. But what does he pray? And this, for me, is the thing that is interesting. He doesn't pray. He doesn't pray that they would be, um, there would be great healings. He doesn't pray that the supernatural would happen. He doesn't pray. What does he pray? He prays that they would be one. He uses the example of the Trinity. Father, that you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. He prays for unity. He prays for oneness and he prays it according to that picture of the Trinity. The Father, the Son. He's already said to his disciples, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's already told them that. The Holy Spirit's going to come. Well, It's better that I go because another's going to come. He's already told them that, that there is this Trinitarian prayer that he prays about the Father, the Son and the Spirit and unity and that that would be where these disciples would be, that they would be in that oneness, that they may be one as we are one. Now, when we think of the, the, the oneness between the Father and the Son and we, we think, how on earth do we become one like that? What we know, though, is the oneness between the Father and Son. It's not superficial. It's not about what it looks like. Yeah? There's a heart thing. There's a deeper thing that he's going for here. <clears throat> and he says that they may be one as we are one, brought to what? Complete unity. Complete unity. One of the examples that I often think about, and, and, and this doesn't necessarily apply to everyone, but it still is an example, is marriage is an example of oneness. Yeah, the two become one. That's what the Bible tells us. Marriage is about the two becoming one. We're different, but we're together. Now, in marriage, you're not necessarily united in everything, are you? 
Yeah, certainly Pauline and I, we're not united in everything. Yeah, I mean, we are united in everything Pauline says we're united in, but we're not necessarily united in everything. I do have a little bit of personality and I try and do my thing, but it doesn't always work. Yeah, we're not united in everything, but there is a togetherness, there is a heart thing, there is a, there is a perspective and a purpose that I would say in our marriage we are united in. Yeah, we know which way we're going. Yeah, there is a heart for one another, which is over and above even our hearts for, for others. Yeah, marriage is an example of oneness. Marriage is an example of togetherness. And, and we read about that in Ephesians. But it's more than about marriage. In Ephesians 2, it talks about the end of hostility, the end of separation, foreigners and aliens becoming members of the same household. It's still that family picture. We've talked about the father, still a family picture, members of the same household with God's people, the community where God dwells, where he is by his spirit. So it tells us this passage, this prayer of Jesus, they may be one as we are one, brought to complete unity. Why? Why does he do that? He says this, so that the world may know. So that the world may know. You may not have realised this, but the unity of the church, even in this room, the unity of the community of believers is missional. Part of your evangelism is to one another. Part of your evangelism is how do we break across barriers and build this kind of unity? Because if we build this kind of unity, Jesus tells us the world will know. And what will the world know? The world will know that he has come from God. It's almost like the unity of the believers authenticates the fact that Jesus is Jesus. That he is the son of God. It's not purely about us being nice to one another. There is something about the togetherness of the church, the coming together of the church that will tell the world something about who Jesus is. So that the world may believe that you've sent me. It's missional. But then also he goes on. He doesn't just stop at the world may believe that you sent me, although that is really important. And, and that you loved them. We've talked again about the Father this morning, that God loves you. He loves you. And you might think to yourself, well, nobody really loves me. Nobody loves me. God loves you. God loves you. Now, you may not want to receive his love. You may not even want to turn to his love, but please know he does love you. He does love you. And that if you can find that way of understanding and stepping into his love, it changes everything. It really does. Because there's a security that can come. You just think about it. There's a security that comes from any child who knows that they're loved. Yeah? Grace makes a difference. And grace is about recognising that I'm loved and I'm loved regardless. Yeah? I'm loved regardless of what I do. I'm loved. You have loved them even as you have loved me. God is motivated by this deep sense of love that he has for us. He's motivated by this idea of unity. 
You see, John 17 paints this powerful picture of what unity can achieve and how much Jesus looks upon it as a marker of who he is and what he has done. It authenticates him as the son of God. He doesn't pray for healing and miracles at this point. He doesn't pray for gospel advancement in the way that we think about it. He prayed for unity. Way more difficult to achieve, but potentially way more successful in drawing people in. Because if you don't have the unity, what are you bringing people into? One of the challenges that we have discovered, I think, over the last two years, is that the church is as divided inside as the world is outside. There's a book that's written, and I keep talking about this book. I need to read it. I've never read it, but there's one quote I know from the book. Yeah, I've not read this book. I've been really open. I've not read this book, The Invisible Divides, by a friend of mine called Paul Brown. There's a quote in that book that says this. One of them. I don't know who, which one of it says. I didn't know I was working class until I came to church. What kind of situation is that? Where you didn't know that you were different. You didn't know that there was a divide that, that separated you from others until you came to the place where you should never know that there is a divide. What kind of situation is that? The church is as much divided, we have to be honest, as the world outside. And that has been exposed over the last two years. And we can't ignore it. We can't ignore it because in the end, if we do not show the unity that he talks about here, the world will not know. The world will not know that he came. He prayed for unity. Now, one of the ways that we must pursue unity and understand unity is through the way of reconciliation. Reconciliation is the way to unity. Yeah, And I don't just mean, oh, yeah, well, that's a good word. No, no, when you read the Bible, you'll find it's the Bible way to unity. It's reconciliation. In many other scriptures, we get an example of what reconciliation does and how it unpacks this idea of unity for us. Reconciliation is a work of the cross. It unites races. That's what Ephesians 2 tells us. The Jew and the Gentile, they represent races. It's not just that they represent law and everything. They represent difference. And what does it say about those differences? It says, oh, actually, at the cross, at the cross, those differences were removed. Those barriers were set apart. The hostility was removed and peace comes. Peace in relationships between people who are very different is a sign of what the cross has done. If there is not peace in your relationships with people who are different to you and you're Christian, then there's something that hasn't been achieved yet that the cross does achieve. The cross achieves peace. The cross removes hostility. The cross gets rid of barriers. The cross does that. We need to lean into the cross. Secondly, reconciliation not only unites races, but if you read in Galatians, it also unites classes and genders. This is what it says in Galatians 3, 26, verse 20, 26 to 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you have been baptised into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. You are all one in Christ. The purpose here is there is a oneness that comes about through people being reconciled because of the cross. It's not to say that everyone will agree on everything. 
It's not to say that we become the same kind of personality or person, but there is something that it should be deeply entrenched in the Christian. Whether you, whichever background you're from, whichever gender you are, there's something that should be deeply entrenched in the Christian that brings you into oneness, brings you into unity. And that is what we should be pursuing. Because if you pursue that, there are examples throughout the scripture where the pursuit of unity in this kind of way brings people. Why? Because the world doesn't have an answer to that. It doesn't. Legislation doesn't change people's hearts. Equal opportunities doesn't make it equal. Only in the gospel does this. And in fact, the only thing, if you read about reconciliation in the Bible, what you'll find is reconciliation, every time it's talked about in the New Testament, is related to the cross. Reconciliation comes through what Jesus did at the cross. Therefore, we're leaning into something that we are familiar with. God doesn't just reconcile me to himself. He reconciles me to my brothers and my sisters. But if that reconciliation hasn't happened, then something of the gospel hasn't happened. The gospel becomes defective at that point. And sometimes we don't even believe that that's necessary. The gospel becomes defective at that point. But the other thing about reconciliation that I am discovering myself, and I think there is some truth in this, is whilst reconciliation is something that God has done, and that he has drawn us into, it's also a very personal journey. God needs to take me on a journey towards reconciliation. I'm going to give you a very quick story from the Bible, if I can do it really, really quickly. The story of Jacob and Esau. If you think about that story, you know it from the Old Testament. Jacob and Esau were brothers. Jacob does Esau wrong. We know that. He takes his birthright. He takes his blessing. He then runs away. Yeah, and he runs away with these words in, my, in his ears. Esau says, the time of my father's passing is coming. When he passes, I will kill my brother. He runs away knowing that his brother is feeling that way about him. He runs away, doesn't deal with his problems, runs away, finds himself in a different place. Yes, with his own people where, surprise, surprise, he ends up having the same kinds of problems. With his uncle, the same kind of you know, misunderstandings, the same kind of manipulation enters into his relationships over there. He's not dealt with it over here and they enter into his relationships over there. There comes a point where he has to run away again. But this time it's interesting because God says to him, Jacob, you're going to go back and I'm going to be with you and you're going to inherit the land. That's what God says to him. God doesn't say to him, oh, and by the way, in order to inherit the land, you're going to have to face your brother Esau. Esau was Jacob's biggest fear. It was his biggest fear. I know what my brother wants to do to me. So he goes on his journey. He's going back. He's on his way back now with his wives and his children, coming back towards the land. He then gets the, he gets the rumour. He hears the message. Oh, Esau's on his way to meet you with 400 horsemen. Oh, interestingly enough, the only time you read about Jacob praying is after that moment. Yeah, and Jacob says, oh God, how wonderful you are. You've given me all this stuff. Please protect me from my brother, for I fear him. 
Please protect me. And it's interesting. So he's going on this journey. He's now fearful. He comes before God. He then has a night where he wrestles with God. You know the story. He encounters God in the night. He wrestles with God. What does God do? He touches his hip and he changes his name. Jacob's journey to reconciliation is all of this. The moment of reconciliation, when he actually stands before Esau, he's like, it's just one moment. But God has taken him on this journey to get him to the place where he can stand before his brother. And then he sends, you remember, he sends all the cattle ahead of him. He's sending gifts to his brother. Oh, my brother, here's some cows. Here's some sheep. Have them, have them. And Esau says, what's all this you're sending to me? And he says, oh, you know, I was just sending you some gifts. Please help, please, you know, please, please don't kill me kind of thing. And Esau says, I have enough. He, he's already dealt with his stuff. Yeah, 20 years ago, the last words Jacob heard was Esau wanting to kill him. Now Esau embraces him like a long lost brother. And Jacob says to him, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. They're reconciled. But when I, when I understood that and, and read about that, when I understood that, I realised, oh my goodness, most of that was personal. Most of that was personal. The willingness to face your own fears. What's your deepest fear? What's the thing that you fear the most? Are you prepared to face it? Because Jacob needed to face his deepest fear, which was his brother Esau, before he could inherit the land that God had promised him. Reconciliation matters and it's very personal. And there may be that for you, relationships that you need to sort you need to become reconciled on if you're going to inherit because it matters to God. We know it matters to God because Jesus prayed it six days before he died. He prays that the people would be united. And the way to unity is reconciliation. It's a personal journey. But there are some barriers to building unity through reconciliation. I'm just going to mention these. The first is this. Proximity itself doesn't mean reconciliation. It's wonderful that this group of people is diverse, but proximity itself, being in the room itself, doesn't mean you're reconciled. Now, obviously, there is a theological side to it. Oh, we're all reconciled, Owen. And yeah, I get that. But you know the reality. Yeah? You know whether you're actually reconciled. You know whether you've gone from being strangers, foreigners, aliens on the outside, and that you feel like part of the household. You know that. You know that as a church, whether that's you. Proximity itself doesn't mean reconciliation. The other barrier, and these are all in our minds, the second barrier that's in our mind is we think this idea of reconciliation, we think this idea of, of racial justice, racial reconciliation is a social justice issue, not a gospel one. And yet, as I've said, every mention of reconciliation in the New Testament points to the cross. Every single one. And we need it. And we don't just need reconciliation around race. Do you know what? There would be less churches planted if people knew how to reconcile more. Sometimes we plant churches because we're annoyed. And we go, hallelujah, they left well. But what we mean is it didn't come out that they were annoyed. Reconciliation is a deep theology that we need, but we definitely need it in the area of race and reconciliation. We need it. It's a, it's a gospel issue. If it's not a gospel issue, it becomes an optional one. And for me, 
personally, don't mean to offend anyone, the fact that we think of reconciliation around race as optional is, is heretical. It's heretical. It's not there. Thirdly, we justify divisions by race in the church. We justify it. We live with it. We learn to live with it. I don't know whether Martin Luther King ever said that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most divided hour of the week in America. I don't know whether he said it, but it says something. Somebody said it. And there's some truth to that. Even today, there's some truth to that. We justify differences. We justify division by race. We believe that reconciliation is one day going to be a heavenly reality, but it's, not some, but it's an earthly ideal. Yeah, oh, it'd be wonderful if it were here on earth, but it's not, as it's not going to be here on earth, I might as well get on and do some other stuff. Actually, we grieve the heart of God when we take that approach. This is not an easy thing to do. This is Jacob meeting Esau, facing his deepest fear. And this is something that we need to do. And then another barrier for me that I, I suppose I've begun to see is one of our deepest worldviews, most subconscious ways of looking at the world is to racialize the world. I see people according to their race and I, I see people who, who I don't want to admit I feel they're inferior, but I do think they're inferior to me or I don't want to admit these things, but I do feel these things. We racialize the world we live in. And for the last three, four hundred years, that's how we've lived. And so every time we preach the gospel, we're preaching the gospel in a world that is racialized. It's a, it's a deep subconscious view that we all hold. And if you don't realize it's a deep subconscious view that you hold, you're not going to deal with it. Because you don't deal with problems you don't think you've got. But if you realize to yourself, oh my goodness, God, you've raised something here. I don't get it fully, but I, I recognise. If I thought, if I genuinely thought that my dealing with this issue around race and reconciliation in the church was dependent, depending on how I deal with it, was to be, would affect whether or not I inherited the promise, I think I would want to deal with it. If I don't think it has anything to do with the promise, why would I deal with it? So we need to shift, in my mind. We need to shift. I said right at the beginning, I talked about the fact that Jesus walked the earth and when he was here, he prayed. Six days later, he died. He hung on a cross. He left us, didn't he? He left us with a meal that we celebrate together, communion. And if ever there was a meal that was meant to celebrate unity, it's that. If ever there was a moment where we were meant to think about, be reminded of what he did and, and what he achieved on the cross both for us individually, but for us as a community. It's that moment. It's that moment. Churches do it every week and they don't really know. Oh, there is something beyond, beyond this. Some churches do the peace, don't they? they? They celebrate the peace. The kind of peace that we want to celebrate is the peace we read about in Ephesians where he says, and he brought peace. He brings peace. Now, there are huge amounts of practical outworkings for this in the local church and in a local church like this. And my prayer is that you'll be open. My prayer is that you'll have faith. My prayer is that you'll face up to your deepest fears. And my prayer is that you will build a church that is truly reconciled. 
in its relationships. And then you will find that evangelism isn't you running out there telling people about Jesus. People will be coming in your door saying, what have you done? Why is it different? What's happened? That's what people will do if you can get this. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this community of believers. I want to thank you for what you're doing here. I want to thank you for grace. This church knows grace. They celebrate grace. They love grace. Father, I pray that you take it even deeper than that. I pray you reconcile them. God, I pray people who are currently on the outside will come to the inside. Father, I pray for people who have sat in this community for years and feel on the edge, that you would draw them in. Father, I pray that this community of believers will face the deepest fears. And they'll face them not because, oh, I've got to sort that out, but because they know what is to come is the fulfillment of the promise. The land is yours, but you've got to face some things. You've got to deal with some things. And so I ask, oh God, for this community, that they would be able to deal with these issues. Father, do it, I pray. Lord, I, I beseech you, do it. Let, let us see churches that find a way through to reconciliation. Let us see churches that find a way to God-given unity, to Christ-centered diversity. Let us, let us see churches that find a way through. We ask it in your name. Amen.